the four horsemen of the apocalypse. One of the most striking images of Revelation and one which you've probably heard reference to in movies and um, television shows. And as we come to this passage, I just want to just quickly rewind where we've already covered in looking at um, the book of Revelation. We've looked at Revelation as not just something about the future, but about the past, the present, and the future. That as we read Revelation, it's a vision of uh, the actual word to means to reveal by unveiling. That in Revelation, we see human history from God's perspective, and the truth of our world is unveiled. And last week when we looked at worship, we saw how the worship in heaven in Revelation says something about who God is, and particularly how in John's context in first century Rome, the worship countered the myths of empire. The Romans said that they were the bringers of peace and salvation and eternity, and the worship in Revelation says no, God alone is the one to be worshipped, and all other pretenders are false. And this week we come to, I guess, the section of Revelation, which is the beginning of the most difficult section for many people, from chapter, chapter 6 to chapter 19. From here on in, we see scrolls and trumpets and fire and brimstone and death. And it seems a strange thing, and we often the question is, how do we reconcile this with the Jesus of the Gospels? We think, we almost see and we read of a God of wrath and judgment and all this death happening, we think, how does that compare to the Jesus who died on the cross for our sins? And sometimes people then start to divorce it. They read either Revelation or they read the Gospels, but they don't read them together. So is it a God of love or is it a God of judgment? And we're going to look at that specifically today, how Revelation connects in with the rest of the Gospels and what it talks about. So the four riders of the apocalypse... Um, you've all heard of them before, so they've been traditionally named the white one, conquest, the red one, war, the black one, famine, and the, um, the pale green one, pestilence and death. But as we'll see, they're perhaps not entirely accurate um, descriptions. But as we go through, we're going to unpack each of these and have a look about what it says about who God is, and what it means for God's wrath and God's love all together. So I'm just going to go back through the Bible reading, and thanks for reading it to us, Joan. And I saw the Lamb open, one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out. So remember, at the beginning of the worship, in scene in Revelation, we've seen the Lamb with the, um, with the book with the seven seals. And this scroll is the same scroll that in Daniel was sealed up, never to be opened, until the end of time. And now it's been opened. And it calls out, in the, vo in the first seal, and a white horse... And its rider has a bow, and you can see this picture of it here. And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So traditionally, he's been known as conquest. But certainly, it gives the image of war for the sake of conquest. Think, particularly in John's time, the Roman army, it would see new lands, it would go out, and it would destroy, and it would conquer. And it would set up its rule. And indeed, that's happened throughout human history, hasn't it? Empires have gone and seen land and set out to conquer. But then we have, and then I opened the second seal, and a second living creature called out, Come, and out came another horse, bright red, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, and this is the key part, so that people would slaughter one another, and he was given a sword. Now, this one has been called war, but actually, if you look at that, 
It's about slaughtering one another. It's more correctly civil war. Or when people, a society is divided and turn upon itself. In Rome's time, when people rose up with inside the empire, Rome brutally put them down. In one case, in Israel, when it rose up against the Romans, um, the Romans, in retaliation, lined the road to Jerusalem with 2,000 crucifixes with people on them, so that for the next two days, people would walk on the road seeing 2,000 people alive but dying. As a reminder, do not take a stand or divide the empire. Today we've seen wars of civil disturbance. We think what happened in Iraq, Syria, Myanmar, um, Sri Lanka, where inside an, a country or an empire there is disturbance and blood is shed. Terrorism and even the Christchurch massacre and those um, disturbing places in America copying that. When someone sheds blood out of civil disturbance. Examples of the second rider. When I heard the third living, open the third seal, I heard the third living creature come out. And I looked, there was a black horse, and its rider held a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's pay, and three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. Now this is a bit of a strange one, and it's been called famine, but once again, it's not entirely correct. A quart of wheat for a day's pay, so that is probably an eighth of what you would expect. So it's saying that you know a day's pay, you can't even get enough wheat to survive. You only get an eighth of, of what you need. And three quarts of barley for a day's pay. So it's like people are getting wages which are entirely not enough to survive, but don't damage the olive oil and the wine. And you can sort of see this as economic exploitation where people are pushed down into low wages so that they can't even feed themselves, yet the luxury goods are protected. And if we want to think about this in today's world, we might think of sweatshops, where people work 16 hours a day for one or two dollars Australian a day, not even enough to survive, so that they can produce goods for luxury people. Or even in Australia, where increasingly people on the minimum wage can work you know, in aged care homes, full-time caring for people, but barely make enough to survive. Yet the price of luxury goods comes down, but the price of everyday necessities, food and electricity and rent, goes up. Where there's an economic system which actually pushes down against the bottom and lifts up against the rich. And certainly in the time of Rome, this is what was happening. The Romans were creating a system where Rome and the wealthy took the bulk of the riches of empire and the rest of the world was essentially feeding their economic machine. So in Israel, a lot of people had been displaced um, from their traditional farms and no longer had their own farms, but were now itinerant farm workers. And they weren't necessarily being paid enough for their labor to feed their families. And I looked and there was a pale green horse and his rider was named Death and Hades followed him. They were given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill with the sword, famine and pestilence and by the wild animals of the earth. And so what it's saying is as a result of the other three riders, what happens? Famine, death, destruction. Now it says a quarter. Now in Revelation, once again, a quarter is not necessarily meant to mean 
exactly a quarter, but it means a lot. So if you think about our world today, how many suffer from war, civil war, famine, economic hardship? A lot. Exactly a quarter? I don't know. But, you know, a quarter sounds good. It means a lot. So if you look at those descriptions, you'd have to say, well, those four riders, war external, war internal, economic um, slavery and hardship, and the resulting death and destruction, do they not happen today? Are they not actually the experience of most of our history? I would say to you that Revelation says, not that those riders come in the future, but they are abroad now. That they have been abroad and that they continue to be abroad. That that is actually what is happening in our human history. War, civil war, economic um, slavery, producing suffering and death on a massive scale in our world. It is the story of human history. But then you think about it, well, the scroll, they're unleashed by God, but are these not the four horsemen the results of human action? Is it not humans that decide to go to war? Is it not humans that decide to have civil war? Is it not humans that design economic systems? So is it saying that God manipulates human history to cause us to do this? No. What it actually is saying is about God's wrath. And this lines up actually with the rest of the New Testament when it talks about God's wrath and God's judgment. If you look into Romans, and actually Jesus talks a fair amount around judgment in, his, uh, in the Gospels too. And the idea of God's wrath is like this. The wrath of God is giving over humans to the consequences of human sin. So if you can imagine Pictoria like this, human sin, human destruction is like poured into a bowl and God tips it out over us, saying you choose to go your own way, you choose to put yourself first, you choose to live lives of selfishness, this is the result. And you must suffer the results of your own actions. If you choose to have countries which go over wealth and power, there will be war. If you have choose to have selfishness and corruption inside a country, there will be civil war. If you choose to design economic systems that aspire only for wealth, people will suffer. God's judgment is the pouring out of human sins and its consequences upon us. So God's judgment and wrath is not just punishment, it's actually, this is what you've done, this is the consequences of what you've done. And it's like a parent sometimes disciplining a child rather than protecting them from their own actions says, well, you chose this. You chose to not to study for the exam. I'm not going to help you. You suffer the consequences. You will fail. And the hope is in the same thing, that by experiencing the consequences of our action, that we might actually learn. And you think after 6, 10, 15, 20,000 years of humanity experiencing war, civil war, economic hardship, we might have learned, but have we? And then we come to the fifth scroll. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered. And that word slaughtered is the same word that is used at the, in the worship scene of the Lamb, who stood like one who had been slaughtered. For the word of God and the testimony they had given. And they cried out in a loud voice, 
Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? And you see, one of the other key reasons of Revelation is answering the question, where is the God of justice in our world? What about the victims of the war, the civil war, the famine, those who were innocent, those who did the right thing, yet, nonetheless, suffered death and destruction for doing the right thing? God promises to be the God of the true, God of the faithful, defender of the weak. Where is God? Where is justice? And this is one of the key questions of Revelation. It's written to a group of churches of whom some of them are suffering persecution and death at this time. They'd been converted to the following Christ, trusted their lives into Christ, and for the result, what did they get? Persecution and death at the hands of a brutal Roman Empire. And the fifth seal unveils the souls of those many people over thousands of years who have suffered. And quite rightly, they ask to God, where is your justice? And we'll come back to that. But it's interesting how God answers them. They were each given a white robe and to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters, who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. And then it gives a picture of the, they are comforted, given a time of peace. God is there with them in the afterlife, giving them comfort and peace. But he says, just wait a little longer. And he says, the time is not yet finished. And in this, and that is a continuing theme in Revelation, when it talks about God's judgment, and then the final judgment, God is continually saying, just a little longer. People are asking, when are you going to wrap it all up, God? Give everyone their just desserts. God keeps saying, just a little longer. And it's this image of divine patience where God is putting up with the injustice of the world just a little longer so that people may have time to repent, to change their ways, to find new life, to bring more peace on earth. God doesn't want to wrap it up for the sake of those who may yet choose his way. So God is always saying, just a little longer, just a little longer, that they may turn to me. Revelation also shows in this picture that a lot of the stuff, as I said before, hasn't worked. The rest of humankind who were not killed by those plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, or give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. And it's effectively what the Roman Empire was doing, which they cannot see. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, or their fornication of their theft. And it's image of what we just saw before, that despite God's patience, despite the consequences of sin being clear to see in the world, people chose still yet to go their own way. So what next? But then there's something different. In chapter 11... Something different happens. Two witnesses to the word of God are martyred for their safe, for their faith. And it has this picture then um, of their suffering, but then three days later, they rise to life. Now, who does that remind you of? Jesus. And in that, it's talking not only about the faith of Jesus, the one who suffered and died and rose again, but... 
John is also painting a picture of the faithful church, which is persecuted, yet still survives and is faithful to God. And something amazing happens. Um, sorry, go back. This witness is successful, and people repent and turn to God. You see a picture that God is saying the way that the world will know the truth of his love is through suffering love. And this is indeed Jesus, the one who walked the path of suffering out of love for others and said, no matter what you do to me, I will yet love you still. And an early church whose witness, even under the brutality of the Roman Empire, was, you may kill us, yet we will still love you. We will still pray for you. That witness brought about change. That witness brought about conversion. And 300 years later, the Roman Empire converted to Christianity. The witness that Revelation talks about of Christians in terms of God's judgment is while we're under this world, to continually be the people of suffering love. That in Revelation is the faithful witness of Christ and of the church, that no matter what the world does, we still love. Indeed, it has this quite harsh, well not harsh, but hard saying for Christians undergoing persecution. And it says, let anyone who has an ear listen. If you are taken captive, into captivity you will go. If you kill with a sword, with a sword you must be killed. Here is a call for endurance and the faith of the saints. It's saying God is calling us to a faithful witness. If they choose to throw you in prison, go into prison. But if you take up the sword, if you take up violence, if you take up what only belongs to God, then you will suffer its consequences. Endure in faithful, suffering love. The hard call for the Christian life of worship. And you begin to see what Revelation is about. It's actually about the mission of Christ and his suffering love for the sake of the world. That a world under sin, its own sin, and the consequences of that, war and civil war and destruction, the call is in that world, even though we may suffer, be true to the loving witness of Christ. But, and there is a but, the how long is not forever. There is an end, and Revelation talks about an end, as Jesus does, a final day where divine justice must be upheld, that God will put the world to rights and the universe to rights because God is the God of love and the God of love cannot abide sin and suffering forever. But there must come a day when sin and suffering is destroyed and only love abounds. And it has this bleak warning. The nations raged. And you get this idea of the picture of people just going their own way, living their own thing, and the nations turning against God and raging against the world and each other. But your, this is God's wrath has come. And the time of judging the dead for rewarding your servants and your prophets and saints and all who fear you your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So God, the message in Revelation is one of patience, but it also sounds a warning. There will be an end. There will be a time when God puts the world to rights. 
So in this section, Revelation shows a picture of the world where the consequences of human sin are set free and destroy human life. In this world, Christ and his followers are called to suffer sin, suffer the effects of sin, to show God's love that others may repent. But this picture is also an encouragement for those who suffer and die as a result of human sin and a warning to those who perpetrate it. Revelation was written to two groups of people. To those under the boot of the empire, it was a message of encouragement and hope. Yes, God knows you're suffering. Just a little longer, God will provide justice to you. But it was also a letter to some other churches which weren't suffering, which were wealthy and think they could do their own thing. And it's a warning thing because we're a bit more like those churches and says, you need to wake up and understand the world as it is. You might be okay, you might be doing fine, but it's not so in the rest of the world. What is your call for your sisters and brothers in this world who are not experiencing the same blessings as you? Your world might look fine, but it's not the case for all. And as I read Revelation, that strikes me. How are we as Christians called to support our brothers and sisters and those who are under the influence of war, civil war, economic hardship. How are we called to live a life of faith to show the love of God for those who are suffering and those who know injustice? And it's a call for us, I believe, in the first world, in the blessings particularly of this place, Australia, to think about we're not just the church for ourselves, but we're part of God's church for the world. And what does that mean? Through things like Eagle Wings, maybe supporting Naomi, travelling overseas, we can look at ways that we can be a church that reaches out. At Christmas time, we participate in those campaigns. But I think it's also remembering for us to continue to remember the world around us, to support it and pray for it. And that's one of the key things we do when we come to our time of prayer. And so I thought I'd finish as we take time to pray for others. We pray for others who are suffering the effects of human sin. So let's take this time to bring our prayers to God. Gracious God, as we worship in this place, we cannot but thank you for the blessings which we have, for the stability and peace that we experience in our nation, for its prosperity and its blessings. Lord, for the richness of the church here, and the wealth that we have, even though it might not feel like it always. Yet, Lord, as we come thanking you for your blessings, we pray for a world which is broken by the consequences of human sin. For those who experience war, civil war, and economic hardship and famine. Lord, we pray for those places in the Middle East, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, too many to mention. We place it for the people of the Rohingya in Myanmar, the Tamils in Sri Lanka. Lord, all those places where people are suffering death and destruction because of the results of human sin and greed. And Lord, we particularly pray for your peoples who are persecuted in those countries. We pray for the Christians in Egypt and many places in the Middle East where it is dangerous to speak your name. Lord, we ask for your blessing 
and your peace in these situations. Lord, and we ask that you would continue to remind us how we can be a church that cares not just for itself, but for all those that you call son and daughter, who are our brothers and sisters, that we may truly be a part of your church in the world. And Lord, how we do this seems too hard for us. So we bring to you these, our prayers, as we say the prayer of Jesus who taught us to say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. So I encourage you, one thing to do as we think about this, that as you read the newspaper, as you hear stories on the news of terrible situations in other places, take the time to stop. Take the time to pray for those situations and let God change our hearts as we do that, as we offer up our prayers for the world to see what God might be calling us to do in being those people who say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.